151700 That's the net outmigration of New York State personal income tax filers in 2020 and 2021. New York had a worrisome trend of population loss in the 2010s, but then it exploded during the pandemic. But what's really going on? What is the long-run problem being experienced before the pandemic? And was the pandemic-driven explosion a blip that will be partially or fully reversed? Or will New York be starting a new trend from here? Understanding these details is critical to designing the best policies and programs to keep and draw more people, families, and businesses here to New York. Who left or didn't arrive? Is it the wealthy, the middle class, immigrants, working class, singles, couples? What is the racial breakdown? Why did they leave or why did not new people come? And will those leavers themselves return or people like them or a whole different group of people changing the composition of the population of New York? And what does the pandemic experience that gave people the opportunity to try out life elsewhere and the post-pandemic continuation of hybrid work mean for New York's attractiveness going forward and its economy and finances? That's a lot of questions. But they're worth asking and answering because out-migration and population loss may be one of the biggest threats New York has faced in 50 years which is why so many are focused on understanding it better, and they include state controller Tom DiNapoli, who literally talks to me about this every time I see him. And today, we are fortunate to have a guest who the controller has tasked with doing the in-depth analysis to help all of us understand population trends more. Hello, I'm Andrew Ryan, the president of the Citizens Budget Commission, and thanks for joining us for another episode of What's the Data Point? With this episode, CBC is relaunching the more focused studio version of the podcast, expanding beyond our live events again to have more in-depth conversations with a wide range of guests who are key players in key policy areas in New York City and New York State. Today, I am thrilled and honored to be joined by New York State Deputy Controller for Budget and Policy Analysis, Maria Doulis, who authored a recent report on New York outmigration trends. Now, Maria is not only the Deputy Controller, but she is a CBC alum and the actual creator of this very podcast, so I have to do a good job and make her proud. Welcome, Deputy Controller Doulis, or may I call you Maria? (laughs) Yes, you may. Thank you. It is an honor and a true pleasure to be here. Well, you know, the podcast has a lot of Maria Doulis fans. So Inquiring Minds want to know, before we jump into the substance here, what are you doing now? What am I doing now? Um, So I have a big family, uh, and I I take care of my family. I am also the Deputy Controller for Budget and Policy Analysis for State Controller Tom DiNapoli. So my office has a few functions. One, we serve as the sort of fiscal watchdog on behalf of the controller, monitoring the state budget, finances, fiscal policy, et cetera. Uh, And we also operate as a small think tank, highlighting issues that the controller believes deserve more focus in our interstate policy and political conversation. I also have a team that um, manages debt. And so they are responsible for selling the state's GO bonds and for reviewing the terms and conditions of public authority debt. Well, you know, the controller, the second issue he always talks to me about is debt reform in the state. And maybe we'll have to have you back to talk about debt reform, a topic that's not getting enough discussion these days. Have the controller back. He's even better on it than I am. Okay. Wonderful, wonderful. So many are interested in New York's population trends. Um, Can you help us understand your office, the state controller's interest, your interest? Why is this an important issue to focus on? 
Yeah, I, you know, I think the controller, by virtue of his position, right, he serves as the chief financial officer, but he doesn't have a role in negotiating the budget, right? And and the, the focus during the budget cycle is very short term, right? It's usually we got to get to zero, balance next year's budget, um, and, and come to some conclusion on the decisions of what's in that budget and what's out. And I think, so the controller, by virtue of his position, can sort of stand back and look and focus on the long term. And he understands that population growth, a thriving economy, continued job growth, continue, continued labor force growth is really important for New York to thrive in the future and to provide the services that citizens depend on. And you know, drilling down from that, the personal income tax is the state's key source of revenue. And so what happens to PIT and that tax base is really important for the health of the state budget. No question. I mean, PIT, can you remind us what, what um, portion of the state budget is, is funded by the personal income tax? Um, it, it's changed a little bit due to the, the PTET, but in tax year 2021, there were about 11 million taxpayers with 60 billion uh, in liability, right? So it's the vast majority of taxes, about two thirds, and I forget the number for the total budget at this point, but it, it is the biggest source, far larger than even federal funds. Yeah, no, it's about half of the state operating funds budget, I, I believe. So. Part of the challenge in understanding population trends, and you know, we at CBC have convened a work group that you're part of, the city controller is part of, it's a gr great group talking about it, but we've been delving into a lot of different data and sometimes hard to tease apart the facts. Census surveys change all the time and all this, but you've learned more by examining personal income tax data. Now, those of us who are complying with the law and earning income, we file every year. Um, so those were very concrete data. And I know this is pretty wonky, but let's start out, if you would, by telling us a little about the structure of the tax and tax returns and why it's a special data source that we can learn certain things from. Yeah, so um, I think a lot of, so let me say, let me back up and say, there are a lot of different uh, ways of looking and getting at this issue. Often people will look at ACS and census in terms of general population, that's based on a survey. Our data comes from the tax department, and it is the actual number of people, or taxpayers rather, uh, filing in New York State annually. So it includes, in, we don't have, an, you know, information's redacted, so we don't have particular addresses, for example. We don't have information on race and other things we might like. But we do know certain key aspects. We know, for example, income, because it's an income tax form. We know status in terms of single, married, head of household. Um, and we are able to determine whether the taxpayer is in New York City because New York City also has a personal income tax. And so you have to check the box and make sure you're doing right by the city as well if you are a city taxpayer. So it is a pretty robust set of information. And what you know, we can see among those among those filers also whether you are a full year resident, which is almost everybody, right? It's a, you know eighty seven percent of everyone who files is a full year resident, or whether you are a non resident, meaning that you do not live in New York State. Maybe you live in Jersey, but you work in New York, and so you are paying New York New York income taxes on just the income earned from your business or employment in New York. So then there's a third group or category where we're able to look at, and that's really where we have focused our analysis. And that's what's known as part-year filers. So these are folks 
who have moved either into or out of New York State at some point during the year. And so you, we can look at that and look and essentially assess how many people are moving in and how many people are moving out. And that is the crux of where we have done our analysis on inflows and outflows. Gotcha, gotcha. <clears throat> and if I'm getting this correct, you've done, let's say, two. you've done two reports. You did one in 22, I can't remember the month, one in December 23. Mm -hmm. Let's go back a little in history to understand the pre-pandemic trends, which was the subject of your 2022 um, report. What did you find at that point in time? Yeah, so we, you know that we should say that you know these data are lagged, right? By the time this, you know, everyone has settled their income tax liability and the file is complete and passed on and you know verified everything, so it's quite lagged. And so we were in the midst of the pandemic, very much thinking about all the questions you mentioned at the top of the show, and said, you know, well, our data are lagged, but we should. It would be a service to look at the tax data and sort of set the pre-pandemic baseline. Right. So and, and our initial report um, was much more robust in terms of all the ways we sliced and diced the data just to give people a real sense and also offer, you know, aggregated um, appendices, aggregations of the data in the back as appendices for anybody who would want to use the data themselves. Right. But, you know, without overwhelming with the data points, I'd say there were a couple of trends that really popped out in that early report. One was that we have and I've seen since the Great Recession a really large increase in these part-time filers. And so that's a lot of churn. You just see the steady, steady increase, which then really spiked up in 2021, but it's been this long-term trend. And so again, that's important because, you know, you got to ask the question, well, are we gaining people? Are people coming in or are they going out? And the answer was resoundedly from 2015 to 2019, they were going out. There were more people leaving than filing to come in. So that was one. Two, we see this growth, and I think part of that, and this is an extension a little bit of this growth in part-time part filers, we see a growth in non-resident filers. So really you know, eclipsing the growth rate of resident filers. Now, again, many, many more resident filers, 87% of the total. But they have grown in share significantly over time, right? And then... Third, um, when you look at who the non-residents are versus the residents, the non-residents tend to be wealthier, right? And so when you look at that those- seems, That seems pretty logical. You know, people, wealthy people, they can live other places, they have investments, they earn it. What, what are you learning about their types of income? Well, we, 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 don't, we can't peer that far in. To, to really assess that. Oh, that goes back to your redacted stuff. So I'm not going to break into your office and try to get all the secrets. <laughs> right. Thank you. So so there's there's a split there, right? And so the non-resident share increases with income, again, I think suggesting, as you said, you have more ability to make choice about where you live, perhaps if you are wealthier. And then lastly, I'd say, um, you know, we pay a lot of attention, and I think the conversation on this is focused on the high earners at the really high end, but the folks who were leaving in the highest number, right, the highest negative out-migration rate, were married families earning between 100000 and 500000 So, you know, there's, that's like, you know, in New York City, that's a middle-class family, right? Um, and so I think those were the kind of trends that we really laid out 
in the pre-pandemic period. Understood now, and I just want to clarify, so I can't remember all the appendices in, 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 in the 22 mm-hmm. report. Obviously, that's also the biggest group of population, so it's not surprising that it's the biggest number that, that, are, that are changing, but it was also the greatest rate in, increase in terms of out-migration, in terms of the one to 500,000, or do... The greatest number, not the greatest rate. Okay, gotcha. So it was the greatest number, but they are big population, yeah. and it is obviously a real issue. It's interesting, um, in the working group that you know, we, we are, are part of what we saw on the census data was the acceleration in 2017 mm-hmm. of the population loss in New York City. Um, confirmed, you know, loosely in your data, it's slightly different, having somewhat to do with the reduction in migration of, of international immigrants. Um, right. Interesting, because as we talk about out migration all the time, we have to remember um, when we're looking at the universe, it's population change and what is the mix of that I mean, it's it's people coming people going people being born people dying correct exactly and all those factors so in this discussion i just caution all of our listeners you know people including myself will reduce down to out migration at sometimes when we're really talking about population loss and what are the components of it so then everything changed in 2020 it was a huge radical change um tell us about what happened during the pandemic um, we can delve into all the different rabbit holes. What happened in 2020? How it was different in 2021? And and what's going on there? Well, I think everyone remembers um, that the pandemic hit New York early and very hard, particularly in New York City. And that become the impact of that is just so apparent in the data. So first, what you notice is that there's this big increase in part-time movers um, over the two years. More than half a million people churned in and out of New York during that time, which was a big increase That's in the That's the sum past. of churning in and of going in and out. That's the full churn. Correct. Yes, full churn. Um, so, it, and, and so there's a lot more movement. What we see in 2020 was that out-migration was just so much greater and the in-migration was so much lower than trend. And so the net effect of that, you know, was very severe on New York. Um, and there was the net, net out migration of over 112,000 people. This is compared to like a baseline prior of like 27,000, 29,000, somewhere there. Right, so it quadrupled almost. Yes, huge change. Now, luckily, that appears to have been an aberration. In 2021, we start to snap back a little bit to trend, but still the net out migration remains elevated at about a third more than it was in that pre-pandemic period. So to put it, you know, to give some context and sort of put it in terms people can relate to, you know, in 2019, you look at the net out migration, it was about three in every resident taxpayers. In 2020, three in a thousand, sorry, three in a thousand resident taxpayers. In 2021, it was about four in a thousand. So greater, right? Um, But not much greater. In 2020, I just want to point out one of as we talk about these relative trends, which is important, we have to remember we're comparing 2021 to population loss and out migration. It's not like when returning to trend was, you know, if we were, if the pandemic hadn't happened, we might still be having this conversation very differently, Mm -hmm. but we'd still be saying, hey, this long-term trend is a problem. But now that long-term trend, even as we return closer to it, we're still above it. Correct. 
And, and to say, and just to give this sort of sharp stat on 2020, it was 12 in every thousand, right? So that was just a huge increase. And peering into our data, we could tell that it was mostly driven by taxpayers leaving New York City. Mostly New York City. Yep. And so let's kind of tease apart because this is part of the beauty of what uh, uh, what you have. What do you know about income and family composition of that net out migration? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, 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 the net out migration in 20 increased across all income levels. I think interestingly enough, the largest increase was for those with incomes less than $50,000, right? It was the net out migration was almost five times higher than the year before. Under $50,000, it increased five times, yes. and that's in 2020? In 2020. And I think that's really important to pause on because we, including at CBC, we've talked about, and we'll come back to it, obviously, higher income taxpayers as we talked about the personal income tax. This is, you know, where we get the money. Right. Um, we have a, a progressive personal income tax. It, it supports a huge amount uh, of our budget. But then, as you point out, under 50000 was the biggest increase. So it was five times higher. Uh, in 2021, the net out migration remained higher than 2019 across all income levels. So the numbers dropped, but they were still higher than pre-pandemic trend. And I think that's sort of the key point here in, in all of this. Um, it, for those, so and so where we are we? For this group that we're talking about, less than 50,000, then that number of taxpayers leaving New York were nearly double that in 2019. For those over 500,000, and we didn't really, you know, we didn't break that down further than that, the net number was nearly two and a half times higher, right? So you've got at the ends, people leaving, continuing to leave at much elevated levels. And by the end, you mean of the income spectrum. Correct. So you have some kind of U, if you, depending how you look at a graph. So you're saying the under 50, the over 500 were the, were the biggest at five times and two and a half times. Right. Now, I know you don't have a crystal ball, and we'll talk more about policy in a second, but what do you think is happening here in those issues? And, and you're going to probably do some other reports since these are so important. Um, any predictions on what we'll start to see? No, <laughs> no, I don't. So these data give us a couple pieces of the puzzle, right? And then we have the census data, and we know New York State is losing population. The city's not doing too hot either. And so, you know, you're trying to put this together uh, and sort of see, well, you know, if you're kind of looking at the lag trend, it, it, the population numbers don't necessarily bode well for the tax filings, but who files taxes is really influenced by any number of things, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I anticipate probably the number of filers will grow as the eco- economic recovery was more b- robust in 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it's hard, it's hard to know whether this is like, you know, the, the tail end impact, if you will, of this big COVID aberration or whether this is the start of elevated out migration levels, if that makes sense. Exactly. As yeah. I was shorthanding in, in the introduction. And what about these non-resident filers? Anything mm-hmm. that you've been able to tease out? I know, as you said, you focused on the, the part year, which is, is the in and outs. Um, Anything about these non-resident filers that has, has changed at this point in time or, or is still that mix disproportionately on the higher income and hasn't changed? Uh, again, it, you know, it's mostly higher income folks. Um, it's, uh, you know, I think the, the takeaway on the non-residents is just how much has grown. So between 
2010 and 2019, the increase was a third in non-resident filers. So they Hold used on. to 2010 be... 2010 and 2019, it, it increased by a third. So it was, as, <laughs> as the population wasn't growing in that way by any means. So. No, and, and in comparison to resident filers, a much smaller trend there in growth rate. Right, right, right. That's good so comparison. really outstripping the growth in in non in resident filers rather, um, and so I think you know the questions we have to ask about that. I think one we have to recognize. On the one hand, it's good that these folks retain some nexus, if you will, to New York and continue to give us some tax money. On the other hand, nexus, define it. Well, there's the business definition and what I just loose handed there. Um, but this is, again, you are, if you're a non-resident filer, you continue to earn some money in New York from your business or employment. And so you got to pay taxes. Not if you're still here. However, there are a lot of wrinkles that remote work introduces to this. And we could, we could sort of talk about that a little bit. But um, the other part of this we have to remember, right, is that while it is good that folks continue to retain this connection to New York and pay uh personal income taxes to the state, they're paying that, that uh, they're paying taxes on a smaller share of their income, not 100%, right? On average in 2021, it was only 20% of their income subject to New York State PIT. So there's a big delta there. Gotcha. So if they were in the New York State, they would pay income on income tax on 100% of their income. They're somewhere else. It's one fifth of that. Correct. Thank you. Sure. So we see the part year churn out migration we see the increase in non-resident filers you put those together and, and and the concern rises and new york city you mentioned before now as we know and you just said new york state you know if you're a non-resident you pay taxes on the nexus uh, on your income earned in new york um the state but if you're in new york city there is no commuter tax in new york city taxpayers as mm-hmm. they move to other parts of the state. Um, That's right. Doesn't affect the state taxes, but it affects the city. Um, can you tell us a little more about, you said New York City really drove the trend generally in 2020. We looked during um, our working group at the um, Federal Reserve, did some interesting analysis of credit reports about where credit reports change, because you know it's another very specific, but you know, important data set. And they found that, um, that 21% of pandemic Leavers from New York City by the end of uh, October of 2023, they were in other places in New York State. So there is that that piece. Have you teased apart that at all in, in, in New York City and state? Um, is that something we need to be thinking about? I, I think generally that tracks with what we saw in 21 in terms of the folks who are leaving went to other parts of the state, left the state rather, did not remain in the state. Did I understand the Fed data correctly? Um, the Fed data said that 21% of New York City leavers during were the somewhere pandemic else in the state. now were somewhere else in, 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 in the state. No, that contradicts our data, I believe. Interesting. Well, this And this gets to the point, which is why we delve into multiple data sources mm-hmm. to understand um, you know what the these trends are, but it is very interesting. People think about people going to Florida and Texas and mm-hmm. whatever. There's a lot of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, right. but also outside of New York State and has implications for the New York City economy. Mm-hmm. And that's where we wonder, as we see this churn, you know, are they the same people, different people? And 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 we're all starting to analyze the 2022 ACS data to understand what more from the census point of view. Right. So um, let, let's talk a little about policy. 
Okay. Um, as, as you said, there's, you know, you know a lot about the people of the data, but you don't know their motivations or reasons. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of debate. Let's parse it out into, you know, taxes, affordability, and, and remote work if we could. So taxes, lots of debate about whether New York's high taxes on high income earners increase out migration. Um, some point to the fact that we have a growing number of millionaires. So, you know, whatever, our millionaires are growing and 22 was an ex- 21 was an especially robust year with capital gains in the markets. Right. And others point to New York having a declining share of the nation millionaires. There are more millionaires all over. Mm-hmm. And frankly, we're not growing. We're, we're shrinking as a share. Um, how should we be thinking about high-income individuals and taxes from what you've seen? Well, um so I, I, I'd step back a second and say, yes, a lot, a lot of the conversation gets wrapped up in, in taxes, the rates, the burdens, how much that stimulates folks leaving. I'd say my understanding of the literature of this from the past has been that it's very mixed. Um, I also think that in the current moment, New York is in a different place. So if we were going to apply these past findings to the current moment, it's a little different. We now have the highest combined tax rate on high earners in the nation, right? Starting tax year 21, um, we have the rise of remote work, which allows people to move further from where they are because they don't have to go to the office as much, if at all. Um, And we see that in our data because we see people who left New York City you know, many more went further than Long Island and and um, the Hudson Valley, which are typically the the destinations if you're going to stay if you're going to stay in the state after you leave New York City, right? Um, and we have whatever lingering impacts there are from salt as well in the background somewhere, right? So it, you know, it's kind of um, it's a confluence of factors we haven't really seen, and I think. The tax year 22 data are not out yet, and it's probably too soon to tell anyway, right? I mean, it's something that we have to monitor, um, but we probably won't know for quite a long time with any certainty, and and then it may be too late, or then we can say, right? Um, but the, 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 the other part of this that I think also needs to enter the chat, if you will, is that, you know, taxes pay for services. They're supposed to pay for stuff. And, you know, people need to feel like whatever they're putting in in taxes is getting them the stuff that they want and expect and need from government. The value proposition. Yeah. And I think we don't talk about that in that way enough. Right. And, and we're not, you know, it's sort of like, well, we, you know, we need it to fund these set of policy priorities. I think there's, a, there's another really important question, which is like, well, is the stuff that we're paying for doing what we need it to do, what citizens want? And that, you know, there needs to be more conversation around that, too, because I think people, um, you know, people are happy. Uh, this is maybe not the best comparison, but people are happy to give to a charity when they know the charity is doing work that they believe in and want and want to support, right? And it's the same thing. People want to believe government is doing what they needed to do and providing the services, whether it's schools or healthcare or street, you know, no potholes on the streets, functioning mass transit. They just want to see the tax dollars working effectively. Right. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, simply put, uh, New York. We've, we've had high taxes. Maybe we leapfrogged to the highest personal income tax. We mm-hmm. took our highest corporate franchise tax combined rate and increased it more. But 
New York has been willing to pay high taxes and have a robust set of services. Yeah. And the question is, as you say, the value proposition. And the value proposition can be different for different populations in different places in the state. But, you know, people are willing to do it if they think it's worth it. And then, of course, the pandemic, the question on remote work is options. Did the yes. options change? What's also interesting is we have to remember this. I've been thinking about this declining share of millionaires. And, and part of it is the argument that people of, of means have options and, and they're less mm -hmm. price sensitive. I think some are price sensitive, some are not. There's tipping points, and this is one of the challenges. Right. But part of it is there are other states where the number of millionaires is increasing. It's not like they're leaving New York. They're just not creating their millions here. Mm -hmm. Not to try to set your research agenda, but I do <laughs> wonder about those non-resident fathers and those those non-resident fathers, if you can ever track, were they ever residents? And has that changed over, over time? Because that might give us a sense of people creating their millions while living elsewhere. Yeah, so. I, I think that's beyond our control. It's not, it's beyond what we can see in the data because we don't have the previous addresses. Oh, right? gotcha, gotcha. But does the tax department? Do you think they must? Well, I think we you know, um, you know, the tax commissioner has been a phenomenal participant. In the work group was phenomenal yes. at the growing Gotham. Yes, very uh, good on the panel too. She was, yeah, she was phenomenal. I meant to compliment her during our meeting yesterday. She was great yesterday. She's really been a great resource for the mm -hmm. state of state of New York and it's, it, it, it's been plus. so that's on the taxes what about housing affordability because part of the proposition and it has been a crisis around the state the governor's focused on this the mayor's focused on this Every, everyone's talking about it any implications of your findings are it's hard to tease out but inferentially you look at those under 50,000 but housing affordability in New York crosses a lot of income thresholds any thoughts about this yeah, I mean, so th this is something that is definitely at play, and I will also say there are risks out there for the state in terms of um, what's known as the convenience of the employer rule. So even if you, you were working remotely for your New York firm, but you don't show up to the office, so we're still taxing your income, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, there was a case that sort of... Um, you know, failed or didn't go anywhere, if you will, it, it probably, you know, it will rise again in some form. And I think that's something we need to watch. But I, you know, the truth is that these issues become ever more present because again, remote work gives you the ability to be farther because you don't mind a longer commute. Um, if you're making if you, it two days a week. Exactly. Whereas, and you know, and then you can arrange the rest of your life, your childcare, whatever have you around that. Um, and so, again, it gives people more flexibility to make location decisions and to feel like, well, if I, if, if I now have the ability to lower my housing costs, which is the greatest part of the household budget for nearly everybody, um, you know, that gives me some discretionary income I can, you know, use to save, put in my kids' college funds, go on vacation, you know, spend on other things. Um, so and I do think, you want to prioritize the college funds versus vacation personally or? No, uh, that's going, what I'm, I've been doing, because, <laughs> <laughs> which should surprise no one. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, so basically it, it, people now can put things on the board and make different decisions for their family in a way that perhaps they couldn't have five years ago. So we're getting to the end of our time. Let's talk about budget season for a second. 
We're in it. <laughs> we are in budget season. The governor proposed the executive budget, I think, the 16th, same day as the mayor, unprecedented, uh, two for Tuesday. And um, how much do you think this is driving the governor and the mayor, uh, I mean, the governor and the legislature and thinking about policy decisions? And should it be more, and I'm talking about our migration population loss, should it be more front and center in the, in the conversation? Well, as I said, there's a tension there, right? Because, you know, you're trying to make the budget for, or the governor and the um, and the legislature are trying to make the budget for fiscal 25, and we're talking about data for tax year 21, right? And so, and again, it's hard to know what to make of it in the current moment and where we've been. We can say... Um, and, and I'll offer a few observations about the role of the personal income tax since tax year 21 changes, which were to uh, levy this, this what we call surcharge on a temporary basis um, on high income earners. You know, it, it provide it is a temporary resource supporting a whole lot of recurring spending in the budget, right? Um, I think looking back at the pandemic, I mean, we have sort of forgotten how un incredibly uncertain it was as the state was trying to adopt the fiscal 21 budget. I mean, it was a crazy time and nobody knew what was going to happen. And we were all trying to manage this public health crisis, right? And there was a fear of the worst. And luckily that didn't materialize, uh, at least fiscally to the extent expected. And we had this unprecedented federal response, right? Where we got this amazing, you know, this, this amazing um, federal aid package, including for schools, for mass transit, and for state and local governments directly with very few strings on what the, the money could be spent for, right? Because it was meant to, to make up for revenue loss, projected revenue loss. And so, you know, the combination of the federal aid, things turning out okay-ish relative to expectations or better, um, and this personal income tax surcharge really helped stabilize state finances significantly. I mean, there was a period of time where we were looking at a balanced financial plan, which I, I don't think is something you and I had no, ever seen no. in our careers, where is, right? Where is the balance? So, it, you know, it was kind of like been this volatile period. It stabilized, but this PIT is just a really big part of the state financial plan now. I th and, and there's sort of two things I want to say about that, which is, you know, one, it's supported, you know, there are very few people earning a million or more supporting a large share of that liability, right? And this is why there is this constant focus on what are the high income earners doing because they pay such a large share of the PIT liability, right? So one, that's one, and two, these people tend to earn most of their income from capital gains. So I think what is underappreciated is the volatility that this now, you know, PIT was already volatile and economically sensitive. This is going to increase the volatility year over year. And so to me, the kind of immediate question is, you know, how, how is the state going to balance its financial plan? Is it going to take actions that reduce the gaps over years by aligning recurring revenues and spending? And what are the risks of funding you know, services that people will depend on and are recurring with a, volatile, with, a, with a revenue source that can be so volatile? 
So, you know, I think those questions should be a little bit more in the conversation, but it is, and I think the policymakers need to be aware of these data and these overall trends as they go about making decisions on tax policy. And I think it's a very important point because decisions, they're choices. Um, if I recall, give or take a few bucks, the original projections that the Cuomo administration made was $60 billion over four years of revenue loss. Okay. Between federal aid and taxes, Wall Street coming in like gangbusters, mm -hmm. um, it ended up being something like $50 billion ahead of where it was expected, like an over $100 billion. And we were ahead of pre-pandemic um, pre expectations, yet New York State still increased the personal income tax and the temporary business tax, the temporary personal income tax surcharge and the temporary business corporate franchise tax surcharge, mm -hmm. which was then renewed again. Um, so even though the money came in better than we expected with that federal aid, but even the underlying taxes, the choice was made to do that, and as you're pointing out, and then fund programs with it. Mm -hmm. Now listen, there are a lot of good programs funded. The choices, though, to raise those taxes and then which programs are funded and that they're funded at a recurring basis, we're now putting that structural gap. When you look at the state's financial plan, there's a $9 billion you know, in the final year, 2028, gap on paper. But we think the structural gap, because the tax, the prepayments go away because we used a lot of that money to make the out years look better. We're looking at a $15 billion structural gap. And that's your question is, what does that look like when all is said and done after the negotiations and the adoption? Right. We could talk about it all day, but perhaps we'll leave it there. Um, well, I want to thank you, DCD, Deputy Controller Dulles Maria, for an amazing conversation. And I hope that you, our listeners, enjoyed this podcast relaunch conversation, and I hope it provided the insights on how to attack one of the most important challenges facing our state and our city policymakers, keeping and drawing more New Yorkers. And for those of you who want to learn more, go to the controller's website, osc.ny.gov, come to CBC's website, cbcny.org, and go to that Growing Gotham conference link, because it's awesome. And... Until next time, when you hear a public official talk about a policy, a program, or a proposal, always remember to ask, what's, what's the, the data, data point? point? Bye.